Episode 2 takes place 10 years after uh, Episode 1. And now Anakin is a Padawan learner, apprentice Jedi, and Obi-Wan is his mentor. Padme finished her term as the queen of Naboo and has gone on to become a senator. The movie is essentially a story about Anakin and Anakin's uh, dealing with his emotions, the difficulty of his uh, being torn between his duty and his emotional uh, needs, which relate to uh, Padme. Must be difficult having sworn your love to the Jedi, not being able to do the things you like. Or be with the people that I love. Are you allowed to love? Thought that was forbidden for a Jedi. It's uh, the beginning of the end of democracy in the Republic. We go to... Welcome, everyone, from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampa's Lair podcast. This is episode number 399, Why Attack of the Clones? I am, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Dexter Jetster to my Obi-Wan Kenobi, we have Carl LeClaire. Obi-Wan! So good to see ya! Hello, Dex. Take a seat, I'll be right with ya! <laughs> Oh my god. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, I am so flippin' excited for this episode all about Attack of the Clones. Ah, uh, me too. I have watched I... Attack of the Clones for nope, five times in the past two weeks. God, and I, that must be heaven. It it um, is. I've loved it more every time I've watched it too. It's so good. I've just my goodness. Love this movie, and I'm so excited. We're just going to take an entire episode to kind of talk about how it came to be. Um, yes. So that's kind of the point of the episode is, is um, I mean, obviously there's a lot we could talk about, you know, the movie in, in depth. And we've done that in the past and we'll continue to do it in the future. But I really wanted to just talk about where the movie came from. Where did George dream it up? How did it get made? What was that process like? Uh, and, and ultimately, why Attack of the Clones? Why is it here? Why is it? in the saga. Why is it so important? So we're going to, um, I actually spent, uh, unlike Jason who does have a job right now, I still do not. <laughs> um, so I've been filling my time, putting in some extra work on the show. Uh, I had a, I had so much fun doing research the past week and a half for the show. Um, I literally felt like I was in grad school again, Jason, like doing research for a research paper, except this is one that I really wanted to write. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and, and folks, uh, I, I, I can assure you, Carl has done his research. We've got four pages of notes for tonight, uh, plus a bibliography. So, um, yes. so if you want yeah, a copy of that, let me know. Yeah, yeah, we're we're all set for tonight. You know, the bibliography is great. I've even got my own research that I'm adding in tonight that uh, I haven't had a chance to put in the notes because you know I late, um, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you what it's from and everything. So it'll be. Uh, It'll be a lot of fun. Everyone, for those of you who might be new, 
Attack of the Clones is my second favorite Star Wars movie, which a lot of people go, what? You like Attack of the Clones that much? Yes, I do. I really do. Um, well, and so when Carl brought the, this idea to me, like he was <laughs> like, hey, do you want to talk about Attack of the Clones like this? And I was like, you don't have to ask me to talk about Attack of the Clones. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that or that you're reminding folks that this is your second favorite, Jason, because that just instantly reminds me of why, like, you were the first Star Wars fan in fan days all those years ago that I was enamored with. Because when I was asking people at that Whataburger, what's your favorite Star Wars movie as we were sitting around during the convention break, you were like, Return of the Jedi, but followed very closely by Attack of the Clones. I'm like, who is this guy? I must know him more. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. It was really funny. I was just, I remember saying that, taking a bite of my burger and looking up and you were still staring at me. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He thinks I'm really weird or something, you know. But no, he, he, you were very nice. I'm like, that's interesting. I've never heard that answer before. I'm, tell me more. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, and thus began a beautiful friendship. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so I'm excited about getting into this, especially with you. Um, but before we do, let's take a quick detour because we had a, a fun matchup last week that went a bit. It, it was very heavy handed in one way, but it was it was fun. And I, I definitely have some things I want to say. And I know you do. Um, yes. But we we pitted two great Mandalorian armored characters against each other in a fight. So we put Jango Fett up against Din Djarin in an epic matchup fight. And what did the Larians have to say about this one, Jason? Oh, well, they definitely came in very heavy-handed for uh, the Mandalorian, Din Djarin. Um, he came in with uh, 73 votes from the Larians compared to 25 for Django Fett from our Larians. Um, quite a, a rousing victory for our child-caring... Uh, bounty hunter uh that we're going to see very soon <laughs> in just a couple of weeks again in season two of the mandalorian um but but you and i seem to have very different ideas from our larians on on who is taking this why don't you tell everybody what you think about this matchup carl yeah i you know i mean you know when we came up with the idea of doing matchups all those you know all those years ago the idea was like ultimately if these characters who we never met on screen were to meet in a physical matchup who would take the day and mm -hmm. um so it's it's not meant this these matchups are not meant to be a popularity contest and i think that's what it ultimately came down to if it was a popularity contest, Django wouldn't even rank for me. Like, Din Djarin is one of my top characters, so for sure he'd win that contest. But if we're talking a fight here, Django Fett was hired by Lord Tyrannus to be the clone template for a clone army. We also see him take out a Jedi at point-blank range, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mace Windu and Obi-Wan Kenobi, does pretty well against Kenobi, does decently enough against Mace Windu, Din Djarin gets his butt kicked the whole first season. And I mean, I love that about his character for sure. I love the fact that he is a character who is really coming into his own. But Jango Fett is like this renowned, revered bounty hunter. I don't think Din Djarin puts up much of a fight, at least at this point. I, we'll see where his, his fighting prowess is come the end of season two. Um, but at the end of season one, uh, Mandalorian does not stand a chance against Jango Fett. And, and, I, and I, again, like I so prefer Mandalorian as a character, but I think in a fight, Jango houses him. Um, I, what do you think? I, 
I'm right there with you, Carl, because first of all, not only is that Jedi that he blasts off the ledge in the Genosis arena, um, a Jedi master, but he is a Jedi council member, Coleman Trabor. Uh, he kills a, Je- a member of the Jedi council right in front of Count Dooku. Um, and I think it's, it's very, it's easy to say, well, Django lost and Din is still around. So that means Din wins, but we're forgetting that the level of combatant that they have been placed up against is very different. Uh, Django is fighting Jedi and not, you know, like Luke Skywalker trying to figure out what he's doing. Jedi like Jedi Knights in their prime, like the height of the Jedi order in terms of combat and skill. Um, And he's going toe to toe and holding his own, you know, he can't stand up to it forever, uh, but he's smart enough and got enough, you know, tactical sense to to keep things at a distance where he has an advantage and and can take on a Jedi uh, in a very real way. You know, so and I think simply because of the quality of enemies that he was pitted against, you have to give it this matchup to Jango Fett. Uh, and, of course, you're 100% right. He was the template for the clone army who ended up, indeed, wiping out most of the Jedi anyways. So, um, you know, so there's that, too. But, uh, yeah, I'm definitely with you, Carl, in giving this one to Jango Fett, which gives us a final tally here of 73 for Din Djarin and 27 for Jango Fett. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, uh, I mean, again, I love Din Djarin, but you can't argue with this guy. Nope. Always a pleasure to meet a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that scene so much. I'm so, so glad good. you brought it up. Yeah, it's so good. Thank you, Carl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's such a good scene. It really is such a good scene. Uh, anyway. Oh, all right. Well, um, we have a... a, a in, in, we have a new kind of poll for all of you uh, that we're going to share at the end of the episode because uh, we want you to help us celebrate our 400th episode next week as well as nine years of the podcast. Um, we're essentially still two weeks away from the nine-year anniversary, but whatever. We're going to celebrate them together next week with our 400th yes. episode. We also have a very fun episode planned for next week too, So, but we want you to be part of that. So we'll give you more details towards the end of the show about that. Um, yes. But uh, goodness, Jason, you know – I just want to give uh, just a really quick uh, worldview of where we were in 2002 when this movie premiered. Uh, I loved the late 90s and early 2000s, my friend. <laughs> some of the some of the best times of my life was the late 90s, early 2000s. We had so you know, I've learned. Yeah, you know, we had baggy jeans. We had great pop music. It was a great time to be alive. <laughs> And my love for Star Wars had never been strong. Never been stronger. <laughs> never been stronger. So yes. <laughs> as I was putting together notes, of course, as someone who loves pop music, I couldn't help but like, look, I was like, what was the top pop song from 2002? And Jason, it could not be a more perfect pop song for Attack of the Clones. You want to know why, my friend? Why, my friend? It's all about being complicated. Uh, yup. Life's like this. Uh, uh, That's the way it is. Yeah. Like, 
good old Avril Lavigne. Her top, had the top song in 2002 with her hit Complicated. Um, probably several folks listening right now are cursing or loving this. And I'm just going to play the refrain for you because Anakin and Padme have a bit of a complicated relationship. And Jason, <laughs> you know who Avril Lavigne was married to for a while, don't you? Uh, who? Chad Kroger, lead singer of Nickelback. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there we go. I was like, who? which Star Wars? Oh, no, it's not Star Wars. <laughs> it's almost better. It's Chad Kroger. Um, oh, man. Also, I will say. Yes. I, I will say before we continue on. That would make a very good song for an Anakin Padme music video. I'm right with you. I wouldn't be surprised if there is one. Um, I, I didn't right. foolishly didn't think to look. Um, but yeah. But and also in 2002 was uh, the height of the NSYNC career. And NSYNC were supposed to have a cameo in the background of the Geonosis arena. They were all supposed to be dressed up as Jedi. It didn't, I don't know if they filmed it and it just got cut or if they never even filmed it, but I know it was planned that they were supposed to be in the background of the Geonosis arena. Um, they filmed it. They oh, filmed okay. it. Um, from what I know, it was filmed, but uh, never, it didn't make the final cut. So I guess, I guess George said, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> 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 um <laughs> So anyway, why don't we get let's get into the crux of this here. Um, so, you know, one of the something that really struck me about where George's head was at when it came to writing Attack of the Clones um, was he was really, really hurt by the criticism of Phantom Menace. And he really kind of got this a little sense of apathy towards future Star Wars projects. Um, obviously, we saw that kind of full force from George later on, especially after Revenge of the Sith, right? After five, six years in a row now of people being complete you know, jerks to him. But even after Phantom Menace, he, he, was, he was so in love with that movie. He loved what he created. And then to get the criticism he got, not just from the critics, I think George is, has, a less, has less of an issue writing off critics than he does his fan base. And I think the criticism that he yeah. faced from the fan base really, really bothered him. Um, and, and I think he felt that in a very personal way. And in a lot of ways, he got very cheeky with some of his early drafts for episode two. <laughs> yeah. So his initial yeah. title for episode two was Jar Jar's Great Adventure. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, it was, this is great. Uh, he, George Lucas has always been someone who's sort of not cared about critics, you know, from the get go. He's, he's a, an independent filmmaker by nature who happened to create a studio. Um, and so critics don't really bother him so much, but yeah, when the fans just start, you know, tearing into things, that was when it really became a, a sore spot for George. And, uh, he doesn't like that as you will, as we'll see increasingly. Um, but yeah, definitely, just just to tweak people 
episode two, Jar Jar's Great Adventure. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. pretty sure that got leaked out before the movie came. It did. Uh, was released. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think yeah. he he took pleasure in that getting leaked because it was would, it was his. He leaked it himself. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I mean, he really was taking kind of this subtle jab um, at these, you know, these these toxic fans who really hated on. You know, we know to this day, George still says his favorite character in Star Wars is Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> so, yep, um, he said it at Celebration. He did, yes, in that's Chicago. right. And um, was that Chicago? No, that was Celebration Orlando. Because that was no, it was Chicago. When he he had a video message at the beginning that's of Phantom right, Menace. You're panel. right. I'm sorry. You're right. He's so he's said it twice now <laughs> at celebrations. <laughs> yes. Um, but, um. What's what? What I found neat. I didn't know this, but George, uh, it, it's interesting because I I remember um, after after he finally had finished with A New Hope back in seventy seven, George went on a vacation with his wife and Steven Spielberg and Steven's wife to Hawaii to just kind of get away from it all. He was so overwhelmed from um, and exhausted from making A New Hope that he just wanted to get away. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like he did something very similar after Phantom Menace came out. Um, he was exhausted. He, he took three years to write and create Phantom Menace. Um, so he took a, uh, a long European vacation with his kids, um, in September of 1999. And that's where he first started writing, um, episode two. And what was interesting is he went to Lake Cuomo while he was there, which he immediately said, I know I want to use this in, in my, in my movie. Like I want to come back here and film here. It was neat that he saw a lot of stuff while he was on that European vacation that he wanted to work into his script. Um, yeah. So, and I think what's really, I think something that we, a lot of folks tend to forget is just how much George loved his children, um, his own children. And I think yeah. that being on vacation, um, you know, for the, for that long period of time in 99, it kind of did rejuvenate him, even though he was feeling that sense of apathy and feeling kind of that criticism from Phantom Menace being just kind of away from the noise with his children that he deeply loves. He got really excited again about star Wars and, and kind of dove right into writing that script. Well, and to be perfectly honest, I think um, he may have said this in some place before, but it really does seem like the entire prequel trilogy was made for his kids in, yes. in a very real sense. Oh, yeah. So um, that's, you know, he he saw things and experienced things on this vacation with his kids that he puts in the movie, uh, you know, and it's a nice thing to see on the big screen and then also bring back happy memories from their time together. So, you know, there's that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, uh, f- f- at, up to that point, the most rewrites George had ever done for a star Wars movie was with episode two. He had written about 20 drafts before he even put in a rough draft to be reviewed by some of the other folks involved with making the movie. Um, and he wrote those in nine months. So, uh, yeah. he was basically writing a draft every six days. <laughs> he was writing a new draft. And George says that whenever he sat down to write one, he'd write it from beginning to end because he didn't like the idea of, of breaking it up into different parts. He would sit down and write an entire draft on its own. Um, and, uh, according to Brian J. Jones in his biography about George Lucas, he says, this wasn't writing so much as live jazz performance. And that was, <laughs> that language comes up a few times in some of the different books I read about Attack of the Clones is the George's process of writing in episode two was like a jazz musician. 
And right in jazz is it's just kind of it is this chaotic music in a way, but there is something that there is this common undercurrent. But George was really having a lot of fun writing this movie. Um, yeah, and I think jazz is something that riffs and improvs, but has a steady theme all throughout it. So for those of you who don't listen to a lot of jazz, I don't listen to a ton either. But that is something I you know a, a jazz session is definitely something that is sort of improv and everyone, each instrument sort of gets its own spotlight moment and things like that. Um, and that's language that John Williams understands because that's where he came from. He was a jazz pianist, mm-hmm. um, you know, before he got into writing scores. So it probably helped with their conversation about things as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, that's a great way of putting it, Jason, about how it is. Uh, there's a lot of riffing and improving going on, but at the same time, there is there's an undercurrent. There is a, a, a cent, kind of a central theme that still anchors mm-hmm. everything. And George knew from day one that this story was going to be a love story, and he knew that it was going to sh- yeah. kind of slow things down. It was his most explicit love story in the Star Wars universe, and he he knew that that was going to be hard for him because he's not a very good dialogue writer. He admits that. And he knew that it was going to be a little bit of a change of pace. Um, here's what George has to say about that. No, it's, it's where the story was written 30 years ago. Long. I mean, it's one big, long story. So um, this one does have a love story, which is quite a bit different. And um, it's, you know, the necessary part of the plot that's being told of Anakin's journey. Uh, and, um, um, that was challenging in its own way because Star Wars films have a tendency to be very action-oriented and to be able to you know, slow down a little bit and tell a love story in the middle of it uh, was a, you know, a challenge to be able to make that happen, but I think we pulled it off pretty well. Uh, well- oh, good old George. Um, yeah. you know- the, the funny thing about all that is... Yeah, I love George. The funny thing about all that, though, is that at his acceptance speech for his um, Lifetime Achievement Award... I forget the the build up to it, but he was thanking I think Francis Ford Coppola for his uh, assistance in helping him develop his his script writing skills and things like that. And he ended that thanks with, "So thanks to you, I am now the king of wooden dialogue." <laughs> so uh, <laughs> George is well aware that his dialogue writing skills are not the greatest. Um, so, and but he he did his you know. This is what he wanted to do, and this is what he had to do for Attack of the Clones. So he went with it. Um, so <laughs> whether you think he pulled it off or not is uh, up to you. Right. I mean, he thinks he did, and that's what I love. You know, he's he's always been confident about what he does while being aware of his own flaws and understanding that it's not going to be perfect. Um, he thinks, you know, I love that about him as a creator is he's confident in what he created. Even even if he knows that it could be improved and it, it can be changed, which is why he always loves to dabble with future releases, um, you know, mm-hmm. he still has a confidence in the story he's telling. Um, and, and I really respect that about him. Um, that being said, he also, you know, with all of these rewrites, um, they were getting very, very close to when they were supposed to start filming. And George still wasn't done with the script and hadn't even released it yet to any of the cast. So... Um, he knew he needed to help get some help polishing up this script. So in April of 2000, he brought in Jonathan Hales to help him rewrite the script, 
rewrite that script. And Jonathan Hales was one of the writers from the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Um, So the final version of the script finally arrived um, right before filming started in June of 2000. So basically in about a month and a half, two months, Jonathan Hales kind of polished off the script, tried tried to make it a little bit more linear, make it make a little more sense. Because in George's mind, he had already written so many drafts that to him, everything just made sense. But Jonathan Hales basically said, like, there's a lot of plot holes here. Like, this doesn't make sense. So he kind of tried to streamline it. And then George took that and made some of his own final adjustments. Um, but that's why you do see that Jonathan Hales has a screenwriting um, credit at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing, yeah. Jason, that I found really funny yeah. uh, was... George once again had wanted to have a little bit of fun with Jar Jar in the movie. And there's a, there's a scene when he, when he originally had written it in one of his early drafts, the scene when Padme asks Jar Jar basically to represent her while she goes off into hiding. And there's this moment where they, you know, they have a conversation and Jar Jar speaks to her like he normally did, like all throughout Phantom Menace, like me so ready to take on this a heavier burden. And then she's like, Jar Jar, mm-hmm. I know you've got a lot to do. And he all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, reverts into speaking normal English and just says, you're right, my lady. I will take upon this heavy burden and I will do you great honor. And George's idea was to just play with people to be like, screw you. I was just making Jar Jar silly in the in the last one. But he does know how to speak differently. But he ended up obviously <laughs> not going that route. But I thought that was really funny. Like, again, you can tell that. Like to me, like writing something like that shows that George was a little bit pissed off still, um, you know, like he, yeah. he was still he was still a little bit angry with it and ultimately decides not to do that in that scene. But um, I thought that was quite funny. Yeah, no, I, I like that, too. Uh, <laughs> and it's sort of there a little bit. It's kind of still hinted at in the movie because, you know, Misa, uh, honored to be taken on this heavy burden. Misa, accept this with more and more humility and uh, Jar Jar. I'm sure you have a lot to do of course milady you know and he kind of he kind of does it but he doesn't give like a huge speech of it but it's it's sort of there it's still kind of hinted at i think in the final version of the script but it's not it's not actually you know as blatant as george would have loved to tweak everyone with right <laughs> <laughs> oh man but so at the end of the day he does put together this love story um and for george he wanted to do this in the style of an old 1930s drama movie or 1930s love story. He wanted it to be a bit over the, a bit over the top poetic kind of cliche. Um, and even the title itself, attack of the clones for him as a direct descendant from, from a serial title, like from something like Buck Rogers. So again, mm-hmm. George was really tapping into um, so many elements of the things that ultimately got him into writing star Wars is the way I see it. You know, um, Phantom Menace is kind of him making the decision to, um, you know, all right, I've got to start the star Wars story. So he's less concerned with outside influences, even though they are still there. But I think the reason he had so much fun writing attack of the clones is because again, he went to, he did, the influences of the things that he really loved growing up, these old 1930s films, the Buck Rogers, Buck Rogers serials. And he kind of brought all those elements into writing episode two. Yeah. And, and it's, it's something he's, you know, that's been an inspiration for star Wars from the beginning. Um, you know, 
Star Wars was essentially something he came up with when he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, you know. Yeah. Um, so Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, you know, that sort of era of, of filmmaking is really, you know, heavily, heavily responsible for where Star Wars comes from in the first place. And so he was sort of after establishing the new uh, feel and tone of this trilogy, he's sort of going back and, and referring back and uh, to these old properties and old projects that he, you know, that were the inspiration for all of this to begin with, which they themselves are a little over the top and a little cheesy, especially by today's standards. So you can see where some of some of that comes through in Attack of the Clones, which personally I don't mind because I, I Star Wars has always been just a little bit on the cheesy factor for me anyways, um, which is lovely. Uh, <laughs> I do like che- um, but no. <laughs> so, but yeah, you can definitely see the, the return to some of that, um, in attack of the clones. So yeah, particularly with the love story, uh, sure. there was a, definitely a lot of, you know, thirties and forties romance, you know, inspiration, uh, making its way into star Wars. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, uh, obviously the other really big aspect that went into making attack of the clones is that it was going to be the first ever movie shot completely digitally. Um, no other filmmaker had done this up until George Lucas did it with attack of the clones. He had done a couple of scenes in Phantom Menace with digital cameras, um, and really enjoyed that process. And he decided with attack of the clones, no more 35 millimeter. I'm done with film. I'm going to go all digital. And he loved that from day one. He loved it because it allowed him to do so much of his creation in the editing room, which um, anybody who knows about George Lucas's filmmaking process, especially with the original Star Wars, is his favorite part of making the movie was the editing room. So digital allowed him to do that. Um, and here he is again with, in his own words about what he loves about digital. Well, technically, we've gone to a whole different level because now we're creating the films digitally, whereas before we were doing them analog. We, we had to build sets. We had to have puppets. We had to, everything had to be real on the set. And it was very clumsy to, to go into a really f- large fantasy environment. We really couldn't do it. So the advantage I have on this film is that I'm able, through digital technology, to, to go to Coruscant, the, head of the, you know, the home of the, the Galactic Senate, and see these giant things and... Giant settings and and uh, have lots of digital characters, lots of different aliens of all different types uh, that can act and play scenes and do things that I couldn't do in the first three. So in that sense, uh, you know, I couldn't really go to this part of the galaxy without having sort of perfected the digital technology it takes to get there. Well, the digital, yeah, um, and I think you know what what he ultimately reveals to us there is. Um, Right. That the options are limitless thanks mm-hmm. to digital. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it just uh, I, I've got my 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 research book here uh, is uh, Star Wars Chronicles, the prequels um, written by Steve Sansweet and Papa Hildago. Um, and it's got a lot of stuff in here, some bright, neat little tidbits. Uh, not only did it allow did shooting on digital, allow George Lucas to you know, do a lot of the creating in the editing room like he, he likes to, but it's also something where he can 
in real time, as soon as the take is done, go back and review the shots they got. It's the first time they were able to do that because otherwise they'd had to send the film out, get it developed, and bring it back the next day for dailies. So the instant review of, <laughs> of the shots they're filming all started here uh, with Attack of the Clones. And filmmakers rely heavily on that today. So <laughs> they didn't have that ability up until now. So that's a very interesting little uh, piece of information. So, yeah. Um, I, I think you've had a couple other little points, but before we end with the digital filming, I do want to give a couple a couple of a, of examples as to how George really, I think, had a broad vision for what digital was really capable of doing, and something that I think will really help people understand exactly how important Attack of the Clones is to filmmaking in general. Uh, but We'll come back to that in just a minute. Yeah. So. Well, good, because I'd rather end it with the positive. But, you know, to, to be fair, obviously, there are, there were a lot of negatives for the the actors, right, making an all-digital film. Um, Hayden Christensen was, <laughs> in an interview shortly after the movie came out, was quoted to say that he was in a sea of blue. <laughs> he wasn't exactly sure what he was doing all the time. Um you know, a lot of the actors, you know, Ewan McGregor famously was was a bit frustrated with, um, you know, with uh, constantly having no one to act opposite, always having to mm-hmm. react to imaginary, imaginary things. Um, and, and John Knoll, who was, um, you know, kind of the head of ILM at the time, and John Knoll is obviously still a huge, huge part of the Lucasfilm um, empire. Um, but John Knoll mm-hmm. had to talk George down often from making sure that at least there were some sets that were going to be built Um, because George wanted to shoot literally everything in blue screen, wanted to shoot everything without any sets, just actors and then plug paint everything in digitally. And and John Noll finally got him to relent on on a lot of things and actually built some set pieces and made it a little bit easier for the actors. But I found it interesting that the one actor who never had any issue with it at all apparently was Christopher Lee who obviously played Count Dooku and Christopher Lee was known for being in those old, you know, Dracula and monster movies from the, I think what the, probably like the forties. Is that right? Is that the accurate time period? Fifties. And And Christopher Lee knew all about like acting to imaginary stuff. (laughs) So he found it quite funny and he found it like a new way of doing that. And and he saw it as something quite magical and a new way of doing movie magic. So it's, it's really neat that, you know, you had a lot of the younger actors who really struggled with it. And I think that's valid, but you had the kind of the oldest guy on, on camera who really had a good time with it. Yeah, no, that makes me very happy and very, you know, excited about all of it because you could tell, you know, his performance is very direct and everything and what he's doing. And he, it's, you know, and it really is mental, you know, of course nowadays I'm sure there's, you know, in actor, you know, workshops and things like that, there is blue screen training now, which, uh, you know, for how to act and respond to things that aren't actually there anymore. Um, because it is used a lot nowadays. Um, depending on what kind of movies you're making, but this is the beginning of it all. So uh, they were kind of George's guinea pigs for new technology. Uh, so <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but just to kind of give you guys an idea of what George was really envisioning and going for and how it really is something that 
um, is an important thing moving forward. I want to give a couple of, uh, of quick examples as to how he used digital to create some of these big epic environments. Um, so for example, uh, while there was a lot of blue screen on set, most of the, uh, the at least sets that had some sort of interior were done in miniature. Hmm. So it was a, uh, it was a blue screen set with a miniature backdrop that they were tossed onto. So, um, and that's just something I've seen from a lot of the pictures in this book, but to give you a direct example, we've got the Genos and Execution Arena. Uh, the Genos Arena was a huge one by uh, 135th scale miniature measuring 10 feet tall by 15 feet in diameter. To accommodate photography, it was built in 10 separate sections. The viewing box was a separate eight scale miniature. Both were carved out of urethane foam, sculpted to look like stone. And while a version of the viewing box was built as a partial set in Sydney, the Genosian architecture was changed in post-production and all elements of the practical set were replaced with the miniature one. So they had, you know, a partial set for the viewing box on set for actors, you know, but they changed the design and the architecture of it in post-production by overlaying the miniature onto it. So there's that. Um, just the, the shot of the Naboo star, uh, the Naboo uh, cruiser flying into Moss uh, Espa is actually really interesting uh, the Moss Espa arrival shot is a combination of miniature environment and digital matte painting populated by live action and digital extras. The three circular landing bays continue the designs developed for New Hope. They were realized as miniatures and shot outdoors in natural sunlight. The backdrop horizon is a digital matte painting. The extras were also photo- uh, photographed outdoors, shot walking across blue screen colored ground. And the digital extras joined digital droids, EOPs, and Banthas in creating a bustling port city. But lastly, and this is something that I think is really interesting and something that I think really kind of connects to what we're getting in The Mandalorian, is the external stuff for Geonosis. George Lucas described Geonosis as a world of rocks and insects, and art department concepts emphasized the harshness of the inhospitable terrain. The towering spires were modeled after giant termite mounds found in Africa. The Geonosian landscape was realized as a combination of digital matte paintings, still photography of the American Southwest digitally stitched together, and large miniatures representing the spires and natural rock formations. So there's a a whole combination of different things that they've put together to create these kinds of environments. And it's stuff that George continued to do you know, even into Revenge of the Sith, where, you know, Mustafar, a lot of that lava flow is a big miniature, but he adds, you know, obviously digital fire, as well as actual volcano eruptions into it, um, like that they filmed as well. So, you know, it's, it's definitely something that he wanted to do, because it was just so much more economical to have a partial set, or a blue screen set, uh, and then create these giant ideas digitally or in a miniature um it didn't cost nearly as much so he was able to do it for cheaper and that kind of technology has really kind of worked its way down until now we've got things like mandalorian which look absolutely amazing but when while still at expensive tv budget is still able to be produced at a reasonably economical cost Mm. so yeah i mean i would say at the end of the day too the 
the biggest payoff of what George did with Attack of the Clones is you wouldn't have Marvel movies today without it. It's that simple, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And and frankly, I think I don't know why, but I think Attack of the Clones works a lot better. I I can't get over the overly heavy CGI of these new Marvel movies. I just I feel like I'm essentially watching a cartoon. And while at the end of the day, a lot of Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith are obviously heavily CGI'd, um, I just it just works better for me in Star Wars because it is a fantastical, different world. Whereas Marvel, in a weird way, is supposed to be set in the in in, in our more real world experience. Um, um, obviously I'm showing my own bias here. I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of the Marvel universe. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we have, you know, the Marvel universe is wildly successful and, and, you know, you, you have a lot of fans within that community that still want to like berate movies like attack of the clones, revenge of the Sith for being too CGI. And it's just like, Whoa, look in the mirror, yo, <laughs> every Marvel movie today <laughs> is, is like 90% CGI. It seems like. Um, and George, you know, he, he ushered that in. And, and again, I think that's something that George has always done with the Star Wars movies. And I think this is something that was heavily lacking from the sequels is George always pushed, pushed envelopes and whether or not you like it or not is, is obviously a subjective opinion and that's fine. But, you know, Phantom Menace, he created the first ever digital, all digital character in Jar Jar Binks and Watto. Um, and Mm -hmm. he just pushed it to a thousand in episode two, you know? So uh, it, it, you know, you, you don't have to love it, but I think at the end of the day, you just got to respect that, that ingenuity and, and, and his, his understanding that this is where movies were going to go both from just a creative aspect. Again, the, like he said, the possibilities were endless with digital, um, as well as from a marketing Mm -hmm. or or, or an economic standpoint of, it was just going to be a lot cheaper. You know, if you got to, if something yeah. doesn't look quite right on your digital set, well, you can sit there on the computer and work at it rather than call people back onto set, build another set again, right? Like it mitigates those costs a lot. Um, but yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's just so cool how, how he really pushed that envelope with, with episode two. Yeah. And it had a ton of miniatures just looking at the pictures. I think the, yeah. the one miniature I was most surprised with is the fact that the exterior for Padme's apartment is a miniature. Yeah. That is a miniature. Yeah, the, yeah. the, uh, the rest of the, the Coruscant Cityscape is a digital map. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the actual building of Padme's apartment is a miniature, which is why they're so able cool. to get so close, you know, tracking up, you know, with the, the droids replacing the, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the broken window, uh, before going in for her packing scene. But yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, that, that was pretty cool. Uh, and the uh, the entire external shots of Topoka City were a bunch of miniatures too. Yeah, oh, I love so, Topoka City. Such a cool, it's such a cool set design. It's um, pretty. Yeah. Anyway, well, speaking we'll, of that, we'll move on from that, so yeah, looking so like looking a little bit at that, how they you know the production process of the movie. Um, I want to just kind of go with what you've been talking about here, Jason. And actually, there were over seventy sets and partial sets that were built for Attack of the Clones. Um, and mm-hmm. that was actually a lot more than that were constructed were for Phantom Menace. And, uh, a lot of the production crew was kind of surprised by that. Cause George was saying, oh, this is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller story. It's a smaller scale story. Uh, there's going to be less to do, but it ended up becoming so much more because I think mainly because he was able to play with digital filmmaking that he mm-hmm. it kind of expanded what he wanted to do with the story. And as a result, he didn't ultimately have to just build more sets. 
Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. So one of the things uh, when I was watching one of the, the making of featurettes on the attack of the clones DVD actually is um, one of my favorite set pieces. And it is all obviously a constructed set is <laughs> the outlander club um, where they uh, ultimately have their final showdown with Zam Wessel. Um, and they talked about how it took them, I think three weeks to build that set, you know, with the neon lights and, and everything there, um, getting all the cast and crew there though, they only filmed there for half a day and then they just broke it all down. So you had three, three long weeks of hard work to build that for something that was filmed in less than, you know, 10 hours. <laughs> so well, the, that's the funny thing because Dex's diner, the interior of the diner was a complete set. Yes. It was a fully built set. Mm-hmm. The exterior is fully realized miniatures yeah. and it's in one scene in the movie. Yep. So <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I'm really curious if those miniatures, um, cause I know the sets, they obviously destroy for the most part because they need to create, you know, they need to open up the space on the soundstage, but if the miniatures, I wonder if they're still in, you know, like the Lucas archives. I imagine they are. It seems like they save think- a lot. Uh, yeah, I would think so. At least most of them would be. And uh, God, I would love to just go through that archive and Ugh. just take a, a detailed look at those Ugh. miniatures. Yeah, gosh. Maybe uh, that's what like Kevin would be like. Just they're like, here, you have an entire day. Here's the key. Look at whatever you want. Wear gloves. But other than that, have fun. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't break anything. Look, don't touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah look, yeah. don't touch. <laughs> yeah. But enjoy. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, something I want to point out, though, with while production was going on, um, this is a quote again from Brian J. Jones' uh, biography about George Lucas. He says, "Quote also, as had been done with Phantom Menace, Lucas had put nearly every element of pre-production in motion without the benefit of a completed script." End quote. I just want to bring this up again because. You know, we're living in a new era of Star Wars, uh, the Disney era, and everybody continually likes to complain how there wasn't um, an overall plot structure for the sequel trilogy. And, you know, again, that's fine. You can have that. You can have that frustration. I'm not trying to take that away. But to foolishly think that George Lucas had plotted out every story point of the Star Wars movies would just be a lie. (laughs) So and it was an incredibly frustrating part of making Attack of the Clones if you talk to cast and crew that George didn't actually have a completed script until they had started filming. And even after he continually made changes and quite a few big changes, which we'll get to a little bit later. Um, yeah. So I, I only bring that up. I'm not trying to like ruffle feathers or, or be a jerk here, but just as a reminder that this has always been a part of the star Wars movie making process is that changes yeah. are ongoing. It is. Yes. George had, it, I mean, it's clear that maybe, yes, he had a clear general sense of what he wanted to do with these trilogies than perhaps the sequels did. But at the end of the day, there's going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, Jason, there's a lot of jazz going on here, right? Um, oh, yeah. I, I feel like George really kind of envisions these things in bullet points, you know? Yeah. And, and it's just sort of the creative process to fill in what those bullet points are and connect them together. Uh, but like, I really feel like, you know, that's kind of the way he plots this out, you know, is a bunch of bullet points and some general ideas in his head. Uh, yeah, we'll just uh, figure how, out how to make that work. Sounds good, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, it, it, it really is something. And, and it happens in a lot of movies. It happens on, right. you know, more movies than you would think. You know, the, the creative process gets going. Actors mesh, you know, in certain ways. Uh, you, you see something, you know, on camera that you realize 
worked well on paper but doesn't anymore so you change things up you know and and that sort of thing or there's production problems and you have to completely change how you envision what you're doing with something you know and it it, it happens on a, more movies than you would think um but yeah it is kind of funny that the final version of the script was basically handed out like as they were filming scenes yeah. um, <laughs> and it was still getting changed. Right. You know, it probably right. showed up with scratched out lines and, you know, things written in the margins and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and what's, what's neat is, is so kind of uh, George's kind of new right hand man with, with the prequel trilogy, because obviously Roth McQuarrie was no longer working on star Wars. I, was he deceased by this point? I don't know. No. Okay. I didn't know. I don't think so. Um, But obviously he did, you know, Ralph McQuarrie did not do any direct designs for the prequels. Obviously they went back to some of his old designs and brought things in. Um, Mm -hmm. But Doug Chang was, you know, the, the primary um, design lead for the prequel trilogy. And I love again, that we see Doug Chang so big at ILM still to this day. Um, Cause again, he was someone, you know, who was uh, reared by George Lucas. Um, but he essentially said to Doug Chang and his team, just start designing ships and planets. He gave them the basics of what he was going to do with the story, but they didn't know much else. And what was neat is, is George was basically going back and forth with the design department as he was writing and rewriting the script once again. So, uh, um, a quote from Brian J. Jones, Lucas was playing jazz, bouncing back and forth from the design team's artwork, gaining inspiration for the script from the rest of Lucasfilm rather than the other way around. So essentially what you had was George would go to them with something new in the script. He would see some of these new designs. He's like, Ooh, that makes me want to do this. He'd go back and rewrite something in the script. So it was, you know, it was a really neat interplay between George as the writer and the art and production team. Yeah. It was it was a very much a collaborative sort of design influencing script script influencing design element and it it went back and forth um, and because George is such a creator in editing he was like I'll make sense of it afterwards you know it may not make perfect sense to everyone in the moment that we're doing stuff but I'll make sense of it afterwards because that's where George directs. George directs in the editing room. Right. <laughs> he said right, right, this before. Right. So, right. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think it's, again, you, you know, you can certainly have your, your opinions about what, what you think of that process, but I love it again, because there's something I always remember uh, from the first making of star Wars book that JW Rinsler wrote about a new hope is I loved when George first created essentially Lucasfilm and the kind of essential family dynamic he created with that team, that team of creators and creatives. And yeah. you see that a lot again, you know, especially while making Attack of the Clones, as well as probably all of the prequels, is George was, while he's just the storyteller, he's finding inspiration by these artists and other creatives. And I, and I love that. And I think um, George is showing the goodness of improvisation. Um you know, and, and something, some of his own beloved characters in star Wars characters like Han Solo are very good at is improv Um, mm-hmm. you know, and we see characters in attack of the clones, essentially improv as they go, right? So much of the plot of attack of the clones is an improvisation. Um, Oh, we got to protect the center. Oh, well now we've got to find out who's trying to kill her. Oh, well now we've got to, you know, find out what's going on with this army and Oh, now, you know, Anakin's going to go like, it's just, even the plot itself seems to have, 
that improvisation spirit that George was infusing into everything. Yeah. And as someone who is trained in improv, uh, it's not easy uh, to do, uh, at least well. So, uh, you know, the fact that it seems like the script developed as an improv, as it was being filmed, um, I'm very impressed with how well it comes together ultimately uh, in the final cut. Uh, but this is, of course, the movie where George is famously quoted in the uh, um, the making of Attack of the Clones documentary of saying movies aren't created, movies aren't released, they escape. So um, <laughs> this is definitely, you know, where you can see some of that. He's still kind of improving his way to a final version of it. And my guess is if he had the ability to make a special edition of Attack of the Clones, he probably would. Um, yeah. He probably would make a few tweaks to it still. Oh, I'm sure. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I would say one of the biggest elements of making Attack of the Clones was casting for Anakin Skywalker, right? It's, it's, yeah. It's 10 years later. You can't use Jake Lloyd because he's only 12 years old at the time. You know, you need someone who's 19, 20. So right. they started this massive search for the character of Anakin. And obviously just a few years before Attack of the Clones came out, well, in 97, right, Titanic was like the biggest film ever with obviously yeah. breakout star Leonardo DiCaprio. And I'm sure many folks know this, but Leonardo DiCaprio was briefly looked at to take on the role of Anakin Skywalker. Um, I Every single thing I read about it, it's, it's always a very brief mention. It's like he was considered, but he wasn't available. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means he tried out, they didn't like him, or he saw part of the script and he didn't like it, or it, it I mean, what it's, the implication I seem to get is it just didn't work out scheduling-wise, is the impression that yeah, I get. Um, he probably had, you know, previous, you know, another script that he was working on, another movie he was working on, because, you know, because of Titanic, he was a hot commodity and, you know, had a huge amount of movies that came out in a very short amount of time, as far as I can recall. So he probably was filming something. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so they, they do this massive, massive search. I mean, they interviewed thousands of people and they only, you know, they brought basically the top 30 to meet George and do some, you know, screen tests. Um, and Robin Gerland was in charge of casting for, for the entire prequel trilogy. And she met this young Canadian actor named Hayden Christensen, and she found him to be a very strong physical actor. And ultimately what George mm-hmm. wanted for the character of Anakin in episode two was someone who still had that good naturedness of Jake Lloyd's character from Phantom Menace, right? They, you wanted someone who was a good person, but who had that hint of fire that had that hint of, of anger and hatred. Like it was someone that could be broken, that someone that was going to break and fall. And they really wanted Mm -hmm. someone who could kind of embody that. Um, interestingly enough, apparently the way they heard about Hayden Christensen was through, uh, uh, he was the star of a Canadian TV show called higher ground. Um, it only had one season in the year 2000. Um, and Hayden Christensen plays a character who is, um, it's, it's pretty heavy stuff, but he is sexually abused by his stepmother. Um, and I'm going to play a clip from that, sh- from a, pr- uh, from that show higher ground. And I think it shows the sort of acting prowess they wanted in the character of Anakin heads up though. I do just want to give a heads up that, that this, this scene could be a bit triggering if, if, you know, um, conversations about, um, 
sexual abuse is going to be upsetting for you, um, I would recommend maybe just fast forwarding one minute. The clip is a minute long. But the reason I want to play is because I think it really does show that Hayden Christensen has this fiery spirit to him as an actor. Um, So here comes that clip. So again, be advised, if that's not something you want to hear, just fast forward about a minute. Is there ever going to be a right time or place, Dad? Tell you the truth, it's not something I'm ready to talk about. Well, then maybe you should be going to Horizon. Because all we do there is talk. We talk about drugs. We talk about depression. We talk about stepmoms seducing and molesting their stepsons. Scott, I told you, I don't want to talk about it right now. Well, I do, Dad. Not here. Yeah, here, now. Why didn't you believe me? It wasn't something I wanted to believe. That's great, Dad. So, make me carry all the water. Make me do all the heavy lifting. That's how you want to look at it? How else should I look at it, Dad? Look at it from my point of view. You're my son. And she was your wife? Yes, she was my wife. And you didn't say no, not once. Not once did you have the guts to say no. Is that what you're saying? That it's my fault? Yes. If you couldn't control yourself, whose fault do you think it was? Hers, Dad. Don't you get it? Hers, not mine, hers. So it, that's intense. You know, um, I, yeah. I, you know I, I apologize for the type of scene. You know, I looked through lots and lots of higher ground clips. Um, but I felt like this was probably what Robin Gerland saw that said, mm, this is someone who can play a character who has anger and is told to repress that emotion. Um, right. Cause that's ultimately what Anakin's struggle throughout all of episode two is, is he's, he's struggling to repress these emotions he feels about Padme and about what's happening with his mother and what ultimately does happen to his mother. Um, and they want someone that sh- can lose it. That's going to lose control. And I feel like this clip here, it really shows Hayden Christensen. I think, you know, I think it's actually pretty well acted. Um, you know, I think he does a really good job of, of, of conveying a lot of pain in that very brief scene. Um, again, it's, it's obviously very upsetting. <laughs> um, the tone of it sounds to me a lot like the, the scene in the garage with Padme where yeah. he's talking about, you know, the, what he did to the sand people and, and everything. And, you know, so that it, the tone of it and the, the emotion of it really harkens back to that scene. So I can see definitely why this got uh, Robin's attention and ultimately why they ended up casting him. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Rick McCallum was quoted to say, there's something there's something about him that makes you think, yeah, this guy could lose it. Um, <laughs> and and when Hayden was cast, he was cast without reading one word of the script. Um, yep. So and here's a quote that he Hayden Christensen had to say about making the movie he says, quote, the dialogue was well, I don't know how I could make it convincing. Finally, I just said to myself, I am George's voice. This is his vision, and I'm here to fulfill it, end quote. And that just reminds me a lot of Harrison Ford, you know, back in the day. You can write this mm-hmm. shit, but you can't say it. Right? He's famous for saying. Right. Um, and it even makes me think of, Ryan, you know, Mark Hamill's uh, disagreements with Ryan Johnson about what he writes about Luke Skywalker in Last Jedi, right? Um, that Star Wars has had, you know, actors that really struggle with the dialogue and whatnot that they're given, but they do their best to try to fulfill the vision of the creator. So. Exactly. 
and that's and that is ultimately what you have to do you know as an actor as a you know production assistant or whatever you know you you have to there's a vision being pursued and it's your job to put that vision on screen yeah uh, whether or not you understand it fully or agree with it fully that's not your job your job is to do what's asked of you right so uh, right well here's here's what george had to say about casting for for anakin and and what he saw in, in hayden Whenever you're casting, first of all, you're always looking for a really good actor, somebody that really has a lot of craft and is really very talented. Action! Who fits the part that you've created. For the role of Anakin, we um, had a formal screen test. 102 take one, Mark. To be honest, I went in with no expectations. I really wasn't thinking that, you know, oh, I really want this part. It was just, wow, you know, that's George Lucas. This is cool. In this particular case, I was looking for somebody who was very boyish and young, but had sort of a James Dean sullen edge to him. Annie. Anakin. Annie makes me sound like a little boy. You look at those eyes and there's just so much happening there. Hayden had all the elements of the character. Don't try to grow up too fast. I am grown up. About a week after my test, not even, I was lying in bed and Got the phone call that I got the part. I never would have expected to be here right now. This is Star Wars. It's really, really cool. This is my first. <laughs> Good old Aiden. <laughs> what a cute kid. Star Wars is really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That would be my. That would be my experience. Yeah. Star Wars. Really cool. So anyway, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's 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 pretty cool. Yeah. Um. One like just one fun like. Uh, obviously not saying much about the rest of the other cast. Um, mainly, uh, I just didn't find as much about them. That was as interesting, but, um, well, one and most of the other cast was just carryover from Phantom Menace anyways. So, right. But something that was noted, uh, on the set of attack of the clones, which was very dissimilar, particularly from his early days with the original trilogy, but even more so from Phantom Menace, right? George has never been known to be an actor's director. Um, <laughs> but George showed a really strong affection for the cast um, and it's not surprising because, you know, specifically like Hayden and Natalie are a bit younger. Um, his yes, his kids were, you know, definitely younger than they are. But I think he he just loved being a father so much that it sounds like he really had a little bit of that fatherly figure on on set. And there's this really cute story that when they first started filming, Natalie Portman was just finishing up finals at her first year at Harvard. So she was just finishing up her first year of college at Harvard and she was exhausted so she was sitting in the makeup chair and fell asleep and George like kindly came over and brought her a cup of coffee <laughs> and just kind of said, Hey, we're ready to go now. Um, just like a very, very sweet story. Um, and I guess with Natalie Portman in particular, like he just really felt for, he, he really admired the fact that, you know, she's obviously a big movie star now. She doesn't need to be going to college, but he really admired that part of her that also wanted to just do something else besides acting. She really wanted to learn and grow. And and I think George had such a fondness for her specifically while they were making this movie that he was apparently often being just very sweet and kind to her. Um, so I just, I just love that. I love that about him. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think definitely it is the, the whole, you know, growing into being a father and, and having kids that are, you know, starting to grow up and, and, you know, become young adults, uh, you know, not, not quite as old as Natalie and Hayden, but, you know, be getting there. And I think it was just sort of a, you're probably right. It probably wasn't an extension of that, that, you know, 
you know, created the everything for him to be a bit more warm and and interactive on set with his actors this time. Right. So, yeah. Um, just a couple of neat points of inspiration within Attack of the Clones. Um, and we've kind of already alluded to this, Jason, but uh, he he definitely riffs a lot on that 1950s style. Um, oh, yeah. So the speeder chase through Coruscant, um, Anakin's speeder, that yellow speeder, is meant to be an homage to, to one of the cars in American Graffiti. Um, oh, yeah. George loves fast things. He loves racing cars. And uh, that speeder chase was meant to be like a 1950s version of hot rods in the Star Wars universe. Um, I mean, he went, he went cruising as a kid and nearly died in a very bad accident uh, because of it. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, so that was part of him growing up, you know, through Modesto and everything and why he made American Graffiti and sort of translated that here into Attack of the Clones. It's not the only American graffiti reference, though, in Attack of the Clones. No, it's not. Good old Dex. Yeah. Good old Dex's diner. It's, I mean, it's basically right out of Attack of the Clones. Or, you know, Attack of the Clones is basically co-opting the diner from American graffiti and putting a Star Wars spin on it. That's basically what's happening. Right. <laughs> yep. So. Yep. Yeah. Um. And one other, one final thing I found kind of interesting is, again, we it, a lot of folks know George is a big student of history, of of human history, world history, and you know, Attack of the Clones is part of this prequel trilogy, which is ultimately about the fall of a democracy. And George was looking specifically at some of the ancient Greek stories and the ancient Greek history of all those, you know, really powerful city states eventually going to war with each other. Um, and how that kind of crumbled this really wonderful civilization. And that was kind of George's inspiration for the whole separatist movement. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people wanted to see direct correlations to current history at the time of Attack of the Clones. But it, it, George was drawing from something far more ancient um, mm-hmm. and, and wanting to show how really good things fall apart. And, you know, Greek yeah. Greek history, even Roman history, it, it just shows how that infighting, those city-states... Um, once they start breaking away, everything becomes weak, and that infighting just ultimately makes you crumble. Yeah, the you know the the infighting among Greek city states just left them wide open for the Roman Empire to come and just take over without hardly you know a bump in the road. So it yeah. was very simple for them to do that, and they basically just kind of co-opted Greece. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so. As we get to kind of the release of the movie here, um, George learned a lesson from Phantom Menace about marketing. (laughs) You don't need so much (laughs) of it uh, because at the end of the day, it it didn't sell as well as he was expecting. Um, So he cut the marketing for Attack of the Clones by two thirds of what it had been for Phantom Menace. Um, And he would tightly control a lot of that marketing as he did with Phantom Menace. Um, And something, again, that shows just how like, tech savvy George Lucas was the initial trailer for attack of the clones could only be accessed through the Phantom Menace DVD. So Phantom Menace was the first Star Wars movie to come out on DVD. And in order to see an early release of the attack of the clones trailer, obviously eventually everybody would get to see it. But if you wanted to, if you wanted to be the first to see it, you had to use your Phantom Menace DVD features on starwars.com. So again, it was neat to see how George was using the internet and modern technology to kind of have these perks to it. So it's like, Oh, well, gee, if you want, if 
you want to watch the trailer, you, you gotta you gotta get the DVD. Oh, you don't have a DVD player? You should probably go buy a DVD player because that's the future. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it really was, and uh, I don't think I we didn't have a DVD player in time for me to do that, um, but I wanted it. You know, I was like, I need yeah. it. I need it on DVD. I gotta get it. I gotta see the trailer, and then eventually the trailer was released without me needing the DVD. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I, will I didn't get that peak. I will say I we got a DVD player after that too, but all of my own technolo- big technology upgrades in my adult life have been because of Star Wars. I, my first Blu-ray player I bought because Star Wars was coming out on Blu-ray. The PlayStation 4 I only bought for Battlefront 2 when it first came out. You know, so mm-hmm. I myself have often bought like these technological upgrades myself so that I can get on the new Star Wars stuff. Uh, exactly. That is exactly the same for me too. So, <laughs> yeah, I love how George started it with back in the Attack of the Clones days. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely. But Jason, here's a fun fact. Do you want to know how long the initial uh, cut of the film was that George first presented to Bill, uh, to Ben Burt in February of 2001? Uh, how, how long was it, Carl? Three hours, <laughs> which, <laughs> which isn't surprising. Um, no, there's a lot of story in this movie. So uh, once again, he worked very closely with Ben Burt to edit this movie down and, and get it into a more normal runtime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Definitely. But as as we hinted at earlier, um, right before, you know, not that long before the movie was going to be released, George did three major post-production filming sessions. Um, so again, he knew he needed to make some changes to this movie. Um, and one of the biggest additions was doing the reshoot of... Uh, Anakin and Padme and the droids in the droid factory. That scene was not initially in the movie. Um, George wanted it there because he wanted the droids to be more involved in the final act. He wanted R2 to do R2's thing, which is save the day. Um, And he wanted to show kind of a budding relationship between 3PO and R2. Um, Because for him, they are the storytellers of Star Wars, something that seemed to have been remiss from the sequel trilogy, sadly. Um, But so George went back and kind of, did that whole scene pretty late, pretty late on um, in order to flesh out a little bit more about the droids. Yeah. And it, that's also, I, I would assume where three uh, PO's, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> cobbling together with a battle droid comes in and, you know, he's able to, with the, the editing and everything, uh, make that work into the final movie and uh, you know add him into the Genosis arena and get R2 in there as well. So yeah. yeah, I would imagine that was, you know, either expanded on or in- included because of him wanting to get this scene in there. So, right. Um, something that was neat when George did release the movie. Uh, so like, again, he obviously filmed it all on digital at the time of the release of Phantom or of Attack of the Clones in 2002, only 30 theaters in the world had the ability to play digital projections. Um, so George was actually forced to take the digital movie and put it back onto film prints so that they could play it at more theaters. Um, yeah. Just a fun fact, though, by 2014, 92% of American theaters had the ability to do digital projections. So once again, George set a standard for. Um, you know, the future of movie making. Yeah. And now digital projection is expected, especially for the big, you know, blockbuster type movies. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
Jason, let's start to hopping into some of the, the major themes that George really wanted to put into Attack of the Clones. I think we've done a lot of behind the scenes stuff here. Um, you know, and I, I think in order to close this out, we should look at some of some of what George was intending from the Star Wars angle. Why why do you want to put this in there? Um, right. And kind of the, the clip I played at the very t- top of the episode is George talking about how it's ultimately the story about Anakin's struggles to be a good Jedi, but feeling divided because of this emotional draw to his mother and Padme. So, um, and he also wanted to show how it's a story about Padme feeling torn between her duty to the Senate and her desire to have some sort of relationship. To be fair, that is not very well flushed out in the movie. That point about Padme in the novel, however, the attack of the clones novel, this is very well developed. Um, Padme has a really strong connection with one of her sisters in the novel who has children and Padme loves her nieces and nephews. And you see, this desire in Padme to also have a life like that later on. And she struggles with how am I going to do that while being a Senator? Um, so that is something that was in early drafts of George's script. But again, they were that part of sadly, much like with revenge of the Sith, a lot of Padme's development got undercut um, by the time. Yeah, the well, and there was a, a really nice um, deleted scene that was filmed and edited uh, that took place with Padme's family on Naboo yep. uh, where she talks with her sister Sola and, you know, she's talking about family and watching her father and Anakin walk and talk in the garden outside through the window, you know, uh, and she's, her sister's teasing her about her boyfriend and she's like, she's, she's my, he's my Jedi guardian, not my boyfriend, you know, things like that. And she's like, uh-huh. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's definitely was there and was part of filming, but unfortunately, because I guess time most likely it was cut. So, uh, yeah. which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah. But you it's know, there on the deleted scenes for the, the DVD for sure. Is it absolutely. On the deleted scenes for the on a uh, plus yet. Oh, I don't know. I have, actually haven't looked, Jason. Um, I know that they have a lot of deleted scenes on Disney Plus now, but I don't know. I don't know if they're all there or not. You can find most of them on YouTube regardless. Um, yes. But yeah, you know, I think I, I actually really appreciate that very early on in the saga because, you know, by the time the prequels were being written, I don't think I don't think George ever did anticipate writing a sequel trilogy. Right. Um, and he was very adamant about that after Revenge of the Sith was done. Um, and it wasn't until years later that he even thought about it and then obviously sold it to Disney to do that. But mm-hmm. I think it's very clear that while he was writing Attack of the Clones, in his mind, he's setting up the story that's going to be completed in Return of the Jedi. And Return of the Jedi is ultimately a story about love redeeming. And I love that very early on in our story, George is trying to make sense of love. Um, he's he He shows a very pure and good love between Anakin and his mother in episode one. And now in episode two is, is what do you do with romantic love? How do you, how do you live that out correctly? And how do you do that when you're in very specific roles in life? Um, mm-hmm. Cause ultimately, right. George is very clearly writing a tragedy with the prequels. I mean, it's a Shakespearean yeah. tragedy. Um, and that's basically the type of information he shared with John Williams. When he asked John Williams to write the love theme for Attack of the Clones. Here's what he told John Williams, according to, according to the maestro himself. When George first began to speak to me about episode two, when George said to me, why don't you make a love theme? It's like the old Hollywood movies. It's introduced gradually when the lovers are reunited, not as lovers, but as acquaintances in the beginning of the film. Anakin has been in love. Sorry, don't want that one yet. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, 
but yeah, you know, I, I love how, you know, John Williams is ultimately saying, you know, it's, it's a theme that's going to be developed as the movie progresses. It's hinted at right away when they first see each other and it's going to continually grow and grow and grow. Um, and I remember, do you remember the, the, the show star Wars oxygen that they used to have over on rebel force radio with David W. Collins and David W. Collins ultimately did a, a, a theme tracker for all the movies. And the most, the most heard theme in any particular movie is the Imperial March and Empire Strikes Back. But coming in at second, and I think not far behind, is the amount of times you hear across the stars in Attack of the Clones. Yeah, it's used everywhere, like almost everywhere. It's, it, you can hear it all over the place in Attack of the Clones, and it's heavily relied upon. Um, from what I recall of the filming schedule, uh, John Williams uh, ended up not having as much time to work on Attack of the Clones, uh, the score for Attack of the Clones, as he wanted to, because I believe it was Harry Potter he was working on as well. Um, And uh, so a lot of the battle sequences is just reused music from The Phantom Menace, uh, especially in the Genosis Arena and stuff like that. So uh, there's just not as much original music in Attack of the Clones, which is a shame. But what we got is absolutely amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, interesting fact too. Uh, Harry, the her, first Harry Potter movie came out the same year as Attack of the Clones, and it it took the box office by a landslide. Uh, Attack of the Clones actually came in fourth that year. So yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't actually, I, Jason, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that that's why he was kind of con- constricted from doing more original music for the movie. I I knew he yeah. did the he did the first few Harry Potter movies. I know he didn't do all of them. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I believe it was Harry Potter that had the scheduling conflicts with him. But okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, ultimately the story George wants to tell with Attack of the Clones is this love story that is, is uh, it's a very forbidden love. And it's two characters trying to make sense of those feelings. Um, again, George has always said how Star Wars is is a story about adolescence and coming to terms with growing up. And... Um, I think in a very explicit way with attack of the clones, he was trying to do that as what does young love look like and what are you supposed to do with young love? Um, and, uh, you know, that all has to have to be worked out between, um, obviously Anakin and, uh, and Padme. And here's what he says about that. Anakin has been in love with Padme ever since he was 10 years old. Are you an angel? And he worshiped her when he was young. And now they're finally getting back together. You're sweating. Relax. I haven't seen her in ten years, Master. When you, f- <laughs> um, you know, actually, I'm just gonna let, I'm gonna let this continue because Hayden and Natalie weigh in now on, on the relationship. First, he's Padme. Um, his attraction changes from when we first saw their relationship and how it left. Uh, you know, it was it was a much more childlike affection. Annie, my goodness, you've grown. So have you. Grown more beautiful, I mean. Well, for a senator, I mean. And he'll always be that little boy I knew on tattooing. Padme just thought of him as a little kid. So it's Padme adjusting to the fact that he's now a grown-up guy. Sometimes we must do what is requested of us. You've grown up. And all of a sudden he comes back and she's like, wow, you know, he 
it's grown up into this handsome young Hayden Christensen. So their relationship really goes from this sort of her looking down on this younger guy to him sort of proving himself as a real force. You are Annie! It is you! <laughs> Oh, I love how she says he grows up. Natalie with the pun. What's that? Natalie with the pun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also love how she's like, he grew up to be this, you know, gorgeous Hayden Christensen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Now um, he's a natural force. Yes. Oh, but gosh. I, you know, I, I love Natalie's perspective there of, <clears throat> you know, for her, Anakin is trying to prove himself to her. And, and I mean, Padme literally has that line when they're leaving as refugees. And um, is it, oh my gosh, I can never remember the name of the handmaiden that's upset. Is it Dorme? Uh, yes. Yeah. Dorme. So Dorme is upset she's leaving. She says, well, what if they realize you've left the capital? Well, I guess my Jedi protector will have to prove how good he is. <laughs> um, yep. Right. And I think that is what Anakin does want to prove. I, I'm, I'm not little Annie anymore. I, I, I'm, a, I'm an adult now. I'm a man. Like, and, and I care about you. I love you. I want to be with you. Um, right. so, you know, he's, he's never shy about that. He's very upfront about, um, how he feels about her. Um, you know, so it's, it's really, and that's so important because, um, you know, again, like I said earlier, I think some of Padme's development in this movie is definitely a bit lacking. Um, but it is ultimately Anakin's story. And, um, so they're trying to explain, right. The, the prequel trilogy is ultimately what causes Anakin Skywalker to become Darth Vader An attack yeah. of the clone shows is that it's, it's, it's a frustration over love and it's a frustration of understanding how one is supposed to be in love. Um, and, um, according to Hayden Christensen himself, he says that, you know, Anakin's anger is a product of his own frustration. Um, Anakin is so frustrated, um, by those feelings, but I think he's also frustrated by knowing he's the chosen one, but he's always feeling held back. You know, um, he really struggles to live into that identity because he feels like he's constantly having these constraints put upon him. Well, yeah, no, it, it really is, uh, you know, very much born out of frustration because, uh, you know, he's frustrated he's being held back. He's frustrated he can't, uh, you know, have the relationship with the woman he loves because he's a Jedi, she's a senator. And then that frustration just continues to build because, you know, once they do get married, he can't say anything about it. He can't see his wife uh, very often. And it just continues to build and build and build and build, you know, with, you know, then because he can't become a Jedi master, uh, he feels disrespected in Revenge of the Sith, and then he cannot, you know, save Padme from what he thinks will be her her death. And he will do anything to, to really fix that. The frustration is there, and it drives him into anger and rage and to do things that he wouldn't normally do um, in order to fix it, yeah, you know, and, and that's what makes him fall. And that's definitely being planted and seeded here in attack of the clones. It's all over the place, you know, yeah. and very effectively seeded. And, you know, you can very definitely see how little, little Anakin 
turns into, you know, a, just a frustrated young man that gets to the point where he's at his wits end in Revenge of the Sith and just will try anything just to fix what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to play one one final clip here about how John Williams sees their love story playing out, too. It's a star-crossed set of lovers, really, where the lovers are separated by class or by family, as they are in Romeo and Juliet, or by rank, as they are in episode two. Be mindful of your thoughts, Anakin. They betray you. You've made a commitment to the Jedi Order, a commitment not easily broken. He understands that as a Jedi, he's not allowed to fall in love, even though he feels so passionately for Padme, and it's this sort of, uh, these conflicting emotions. Um, sorry for the abrupt stop there, but yeah, that's all I needed. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love the perspective John Williams brings as kind of the, the classical one here, you know, comparing it quite explicitly to something like Romeo and Juliet, you know, Capulets mm-hmm. and Montagues, they're not supposed to be together. Um, but you know, (laughs) here it's, it's, it's their stations. They doesn't allow them to be together. You know, you're a Jedi. I'm a Senator. We can't be together. It's not allowed. Um, and I feel like George is making a strong commentary about restrictions that society puts on people, right? Uh, society often puts restrictions on people, um, how they're supposed to live their lives. And it can be very, very frustrating, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, obviously this is me just reaching to a modern issue, but like the the struggle that, you know, LGBTQ folks have had for so much of their existence to just be accepted by society and, and constantly having these constraints put upon them. You know, uh, I think a story like Attack of the Clones tries to say that society a lot of times constraints really damage people. And that's ultimately what hurt, you know, breaks down Anakin is is the constraints of the Jedi code. The Jedi structure prohibits him from living into a very natural part of being human. Yeah, no, definitely. The the constraints and the, uh, you know, oftentimes in some senses, uh, artificial constraints that are put on, you know, situations. And it it is just like John Williams said, it goes all the way back to the. Capulets and the Montagues, you know, yeah. it, it is Romeo and Juliet and it, it, it's an old story that's being retold in Star Wars again, you know, uh, it, it, whether it's family or, you know, going back to the Greek city states, you know, the yeah. Athenians and Spartans, you know, they didn't intermix at all, you know, that sort of thing, you know, it, it's it, it historical and literary uh, tropes have been used again and again and again in Star Wars. And this is just evidence of one more that George Lucas has layered into his modern myth. So, yeah. Well, and and I think, you know, being that it's a middle chapter, George wanted it to be a a story ultimately about the characters and what they're dealing with. And he says it's about um, growing into yourself in the face of making really big choices. Um. And, and that's, that's what these characters are going through here is, is they have to make really big choices um, while m- trying to make those make sense with the other choices they've made in life. Anakin chose to be a Jedi, but he was also a very little boy. Um, he said no to a lot of things by making that choice at nine years old, but he'd already had experiences of some of those things he said no to. He knows what it's like mm-hmm. to be in love or to fall, you know, to, to be loved um, in a very personal, intimate way. Right. The type of love Shmi had for him is a very different type of love that he's going to get from Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, 
you know, yeah. and, and, and actually George talks a lot about how, uh, I would say that the, the, one of the major themes of attack of the clones is being frustrated. Cause he even talks about how Obi-Wan is a very frustrated character in the movie. I mean, he's quite literally frustrated by the plot that he's trying to uncover, but even he's very frustrated by Anakin. Um, think about, oh, yeah. you know, he really does want to train this, this young person into being a great Jedi, but he's really struggling to do it. He's he's very frustrated by Anakin constantly pushing against the you know the the Jedi code. Um, so even Obi Wan is feeling a lot of frustration. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> he he's a very exasperated character in the Attack of the Clones. His Obi Wan, he's just you know seems about ready to just you know pull out his hair at any given moment in this movie. Um, that, that luscious mullet of his, um, so, <laughs> you can say that again, <laughs> that luscious mullet of his. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah. But you know, so, so George talks about how attack of the clones is, um, a movie. Uh, it's a love story about Anakin and Padme, but also set up, um, against Palpatine's quest to take complete control of the Republic. So it's a, it's two stories in one. It's the story yep. of two young lovers who are falling in love while there's also this war brewing right behind them. And you have the other character of Palpatine looking to take control of the Republic. So George also has some political themes to this movie. Yes. Yes, he does. Um, and, and just to kind of set the stage for this, um, I, I'm, I would like to cut back to uh, my Star Wars uh, Chronicles, the prequels book. Um, and this is the, in a sense, the opening crawl for the Attack of the Clones section of this book. Um, it might actually be based off of uh, a, a original or, or in-process opening crawl. Uh, or at least part of one because of the way it is written out or it's just, you know, Pablo Hidalgo being a, a weird genius um, mm -hmm. retroactively. Um, but I, I think it really kind of highlights some of the points that we want to make about the political uh, structure that George wants in Attack of the Clones. Um, in the 10 years since Senator Palpatine ascended to the position of Supreme Chancellor, the galaxy has undergone tremendous strain. Disillusioned by the Republic's faltering ideals, a charismatic Jedi known as Count Dooku left the Order, only to emerge as a political firebrand, leading a separatist movement that has blazed across the galaxy with alarming speed. Political hotspots have erupted into violence on numerous fronts, and without the Republic military to contain the chaos, the Jedi Knights have been pressed into increasingly unpopular and difficult policing actions. The alarmed and reactionary delegates of the Galactic Senate are calling for action. The Chancellor is putting to vote the Military Creation Act, a measure to build a grand army of the Republic to assist the beleaguered Jedi. Senator Amidala of Naboo, fearing that such an, an act would push the Separatists into a full-scale war, is returning to Coruscant to vote on this divisive issue. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that that really kind of sets the political landscape that we have in Attack of the Clones and really kind of highlights a lot of the things that George was going for, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and George talked a lot about how he wanted to show that how democracies fall, 
Um, and, and he was primarily basing it on Rome, um, the idea of the yeah. Roman Senate becoming an empire um, and how it transitioned. And also, you know, in more modern times, the the character of Hitler, who was became chancellor of Germany and then became this fascist leader. Um, but he's ultimately mm-hmm. showing how democracies aren't they don't really they're not really overthrown. They're just subverted. And ultimately, he's trying to say with this movie is that democracy is slowly given up during crisis situations, right? You're looking to, you're looking for some answers in the midst of immediate chaos and craziness. So you're willing to like, let some things go to make sure things stay in control. Um, And while I don't think George was directly referencing this, considering he was writing the movie as early as 99 and this didn't happen until 2001, but in 2001, the United States passed the Patriot Act kind of in light of the September 11th attacks, which, basically allowed the government to spy on citizens, um, which isn't very democratic, but it was signed into law because we wanted to be safe. Um, and I think mm-hmm. his, the history of democracy has shown how it gets taken advantage of by, by people who do have corrupt desires to gain more power. And a lot of times they create conflicts um, in order to maintain those powers. And that's literally what we're going to see happen in Attack of the Clones is he, <laughs> Palpatine slash Sidious creates a war to become emperor um oh yeah absolutely there's no ifs ands or buffs about that this is all manufactured by a devious little sith named sidious yeah uh. <laughs> and you know something i was reading jason and, and i'm kind of bummed that we didn't get these as deleted scenes but apparently there were scenes shot early on so the movie was initially going to open right after the attack um on on um senator amidala's uh, shuttle it was actually supposed to go right into the Senate chamber and it was going to be the scene. And they did shoot these scenes with, with Ian McDermott, but these scenes were Palpatine is addressing the Senate, telling them about this attempt on Padme's life and how the separatists are trying to, you know, intercut and get in the way of, of the dealings of the Republic. And to me, it's kind of sad that we didn't get those scenes um, just because it would really show how Palpatine's using fear as a tactic to kind of get more people behind him. Um, you know, like, Ooh, we better be careful. I have seen a deleted scene that takes place right after the attack where Padme, you know, interrupts something going on. So that may have, you know, part of that may have, you know, been filmed and stuff uh, and, and completed for the DVD. But, yeah, it was deleted um, before the final out of the out of the movie. So. But, yeah, yeah, there there yeah. is a deleted scene out there that deals with some of that. I don't think it has the full uh, fear tactic that Palpatine is trying to, to play up uh, in it. But. Uh, yeah, it there is something in there. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, you know, and obviously, right? You look at the character of Jar Jar, and oh. what happens to poor Jar Jar yeah. in this movie? You know, it's it's so so sad because it is you know we as we've talked about Jar Jar represents uh, the innocence of the galaxy at this point. Um, you know from his time in the phantom menace to to now and it he is you know tricked and manipulated by the powers that be uh you know in palpatine and masameda to to create an authority authoritarian government to to give these emergency powers to palpatine um which of course he graciously says that he will lay down when the crisis has abated but of course he's going to make sure the crisis doesn't debate so he never has to <laughs> and then 
make sure the crisis escalates so that he has to get more. So, right. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and so again, kind of this, this overall structure he's working with this, both this, the love story and the political story is, um, you know, how a Republic can be bent towards an empire and how a good person can become evil. Um, Cause that's ultimately what he wants to show is starting to happen here in episode two. And, and, and this is why I love the structure of the prequels is Phantom Menace is literally just, it's the golden age of the Republic. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and now with attack of the clones, we see, well, what starts to, what starts to convert that, that golden age, you know, well, first and foremost, you have to have it on this kind of grand scale with yeah. what Palpatine's doing with the Senate, but you also have it in a very personal way is all right, well, what's going to make this chosen one who's a very good person become evil. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, great. Well, uh, just some, these are just some random interesting things I found while, while reading about attack of the clones. Um, and something I thought was really neat. Obviously one of the biggest uh, challenges they, that, um, so Rob Coleman was the, the, the main person in ILM responsible for creating digital Yoda Mm-hmm. And they said that the hardest thing ever with Yoda was figuring out how to make him fight. Um, and it's really neat. I never knew, I never realized that this was something early on from uh, an original idea for Return of the Jedi. So apparently in Return of the Jedi, George Lucas in a very early draft had batted around the idea of Yoda fighting the Emperor. Um, but ultimately yeah. he, he said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And apparently Lawrence Kasdan really pushed George with Return of the Jedi to say, no, 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 you should have, like, people would love this. You should have Yoda fight the Emperor. And George is like, no, 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 Yoda, Yoda doesn't fight. Um, and also the, just the practicality of it is like, how are we going to do that with a puppet anyway? Um, again, right. so he was limited by the, the actual um, filming constraints of that time. Um, mm-hmm. But they obviously decide to have Yoda fight here. And what they wanted to do was ultimately show that Yoda is just a complete master of the sword. <laughs> um, yes. And, and right. People just went nuts for that. Oh, oh yeah. No, I, I will never forget, you know, seeing this movie opening weekend and the minute Yoda, you know, pulls back that cloak and uses the force to pull that lightsaber into his hand, the entire auditorium just sort of, the air was sucked out with anticipation and excitement. And then he ignited the lightsaber and the entire crowd went nuts. You know, that was, that will never forget that moment sitting in the theater, watching that. I loved it. And everybody else at the time did it, did too. Oh, yeah. You know, it was oh. amazing. It was awesome. Um, you know, some people come to say, oh, well, you shouldn't have done that or whatever later on or whatever, but it was fantastic and i i do find it funny referring back to a, an earlier point about the all the, the the green screen and blue screen work excuse me uh in attack at the clones and the fact that christopher lee is the one having to fight digital yoda who's not there and uh you know him and his stunt double having to to work that fight scene uh is kind of a funny thing and i think it turned out pretty well so oh but, yeah yeah oh yeah um, one other thing I just, I found really neat because this was obviously what created a lot of confusion after the movie came out is the whole Sifo-Dyas plot. 
and, mm-hmm. and who uh-huh. creates this clone army. So apparently in the original script and in the one of the original drafts, George had the name of the, quote, Jedi, who orders the Clone Wars to be Sido Dias. Um, so spelled S-I-D-O-D-Y-A-S, which is meant to imply Sidious. So in the original idea was Sidious just pretends to be a Jedi and orders the army. But he, there was a typo in one of the drafts, and it became sifo And George Lucas was like, hey, that's a cool name. We're going to go with this. And then he, <laughs> he basically said, I know people will fill it out later with like an, the expanded universe stuff, so I'll let them do it. But that's just so funny. So it was never really – there was – the original idea was that Sidious himself cl- created the clone army, just made up a kind of Jedi-sounding name. But because of mm-hmm. a typo in a script, George goes with sifo <laughs> I mean, there you go. It's it's funny. It works. Um, I think Sifo-Dyas sounds better than Sido-Dyas. Um, but, you know, so I, I'm fine with it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that that's pretty funny, too. So... Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, <laughs> and one last minute change in, um, that was done kind of in during the reshoots was, uh, making Count Dooku Qui-Gon's former master. So that was never in the original, uh, script or story treatments. D- he decided to do that during some of the reshoots because he wanted Dooku to be a little bit more fleshed out and to feel a little bit more familiar. Um, and, so he decided to have him be Qui-Gon's former master because um, it was a way of showing him have a little bit more of a personal connection to Obi-Wan. So, again, just I just throw that out there because, again, just what, like a month ago, everybody was freaking out because we learned that they decided to make Rey a Palpatine kind of last minute in filming. Obviously, that's a much bigger decision than this one. But still, you know, even George, like kind of last minute said, you know what? I want Count Dooku to feel a little bit more familiar to the to the main characters. So let's make him Qui-Gon's former master. Um, and that was done during a reshoot. Yeah, well, I, I love it. I think it's a terrific addition that they made, and it it makes things so much more interesting. And is obviously set up some really fantastic stories that we've gotten last year or two. So um, that makes me very happy. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so oh boy, um, just some just some final comments that I think. Well, that that George made. So I actually watched the movie with the audio commentary track on with George Lucas. And I thought he had some really great things to say, again, to really show what he's trying to do with this movie. And like we were talking about earlier, Jason, you know, he talks about Obi-Wan being a very frustrated character because um, he, he Obi-Wan is still a very similar character to who he was in Phantom Menace, which is kind of this conservative Jedi. Um, mm-hmm. And it put him at odds with Qui-Gon. And now it's really putting him at odds with Anakin because Anakin's really trying to live and act outside the Jedi code. And um, I want to play this deleted scene where Obi-Wan talks to Jocasta Nu about Count Dooku. Um, Cause I think it's, it's very telling. Okay. Did you call for assistance? Yes. Yes, I did. <sighs> he has a very powerful face, doesn't he? He was one of the most brilliant Jedi I've had the privilege of knowing. I never understood why he quit. Well, one might say he was always a bit out of step with the decisions of the council. Much like your old master, Kwai Kon Jin. Really? Oh, yes, they were very individual thinkers. Idealists. In the end, I think he left because he lost faith in the Republic. 
He disappeared for nine of ten years and turned up recently as head of the separatist movement. It's very interesting. I'm not sure I completely understand. <laughs> well, you didn't call me over here for a history lesson. Are you having a problem, Master Kenobi? Yeah. He sure is. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene because, first off, it, it gave us the this notion of the Lost 20, which was something that was talked a lot about in the novel, um, and we never went anywhere with it, and now it's now it's essentially considered a legend. It's not even part of canon. Um, but here's what I love about that moment, Jason, is when Obi-Wan – he says it twice. I just don't understand because, again, Obi-Wan can't understand why a Jedi would leave the Order. I think that's such right. a fundamental part of understanding Obi-Wan's character um, up really in general, but especially in Attack of the Clones, what he's still running up against is like, you know, just because things get hard, you don't leave, I think is basically what Obi-Wan is saying in that moment. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. He he definitely is. Uh, he is such a, a dedicated and, uh, you know, uh, to the you know the the cause of the Jedi uh, that it really just doesn't make sense why anyone would leave you know it 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 literally doesn't compute for Obi Wan you know uh, even even having issues with things that they say or or disagreements with the Republic uh, would never give Obi Wan cause to leave the Order it would just he would just try to figure out how to make it work yeah uh, or to change things within the system. Um, but leaving the order is never something that would cross Obi-Wan's mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was another thing George mentioned, uh, is that part of the reason, um, he wanted a character like Dooku in episode two to be a former Jedi is because he wanted to show that a Jedi could be corrupted and turned to the dark side. It, Dooku is essentially meant to be a foreshadowing of Anakin. Um, oh, definitely. so, you know, that's why Dooku is essentially created to be the character that he is, is, you know, if Anakin's the first Jedi to ever fall, um, it's a little, I don't know. It's, it's, well, he just wanted to show that it's possible. <laughs> I think ultimately. So that's yeah. what Dooku does is he provides that proof. Oh um, yeah, no, definitely. And it, 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 that's, that's there. And, and there's a lot of things in the prequels, you know, with Dooku, with Grievous that really kind of give hints as to where Anakin is going when he becomes Darth Vader, you know, fallen as a Jedi, more machine than man, you know, things like that. And it's, you know, that was very deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks and he, something else he talked a lot about was how the Jedi keep losing their lightsabers in the movie, right? We see Anakin <laughs> lose it at the beginning. Um, then he loses it again. Obi-Wan even loses his own, um, obviously, because it's, I mean, it's taken from him. But this idea of the lightsaber constantly being lost in, you know, there's that big line that Obi-Wan says that this weapon is your life, uh, which to me it's, it's what's going on here is, is the Jedi are losing their way, right? That's kind of the point of this whole lightsaber lost great clone wars episode um, is yeah. that the Jedi by the end of this movie have lost their way. And it, it just, it made me think about how in the, you know, Geonosis arena battle, when these two random Jedi just toss Anakin and Obi-Wan two random lightsabers, right? We've seen so much expounded on, um, you know, how lightsabers are created, how important that process is. Um, and here you have two Jedi just getting random lightsabers. 
right? It, it almost takes away the, the importance of what a lightsaber is. Um, but in a way now, now they just become a tool for war um, because the Jedi have lost their way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really interesting. You know, it's not their sabers anymore for the first battle of the Clone Wars and they've got to rebuild their yeah. sabers. Yeah. As far as I know. Yep. So. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, we only get that, we get that one scene in this movie between Anakin and Palpatine. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very much a grooming scene for sure. But that was also something oh. that was added during reshoots. It wasn't originally there. Um, but George felt that he really needed to show this private relationship between the two of them, that they, cl- they talk behind closed doors a lot. And that, yeah. you know, that's how Palpatine gets his ear. Oh yeah. No. And it's, it, it works beautifully and perfectly. And it really, that scene, uh, you know, builds directly into a lot of what, uh, happens in revenge of the Sith. So it's really important that it was added in later, um, because it's built off so strongly, um, and really gives us that proper, Oh, Palpatine really was paying close attention to Anakin, you know, these, all these years. So, Watching yep. his career with great interest. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, Attack of the Clones, again, in a chronological way, is the first movie to imply that somebody can live on in the Force. When Anakin yes. slaughters the Tuscans and we hear Qui-Gon yelling at him no, um, whether or not Anakin hears it is kind of up for debate. But Yoda sure as heck hears it. And uh-huh. it provides this first evidence that the you know you can live on in the Force, um, but I also think it's a powerful moment because the Force. Remember, Anakin is the chosen one, so here you have the Force itself screaming to him in the person of Qui Gon, who Anakin obviously revered, for him to stop. This is not what you were chosen to be, but Anakin just gives into his raw emotion. Yeah, yeah, and and it disturbs Yoda. Yeah. How it, could it not? <laughs> it really does. He, yeah. He's, it it's, makes him very uncomfortable. And then, of course, we get the entire, uh, you know, Yoda arc and the, the Clone Wars um, where that is really expounded upon. But you can tell even in Attack of the Clones, it disturbs him. So much so that he doesn't even mention it to Mace Windu. He just says that Skywalker's in pain, terrible pain, you know. He, he doesn't even mention that he's heard Qui-Gon speak through the Force. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think because, well, even if you, you're right, those Clone Wars episodes, when Yoda starts hearing Qui-Gon speak to him a lot, he does think he's going insane. So maybe in that moment, yeah. Yoda's also just thinking, did I really hear that? I must be dreaming, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a neat way of breaking open the Force mythology that, uh, again, you know, I think this was something that I don't feel was ever something that was never directly addressed in the original trilogy is the idea of the will of the force. There's that's never talked about. The force is obviously introduced. The force is important, but we never really hear about the will of the force until Phantom Menace. And I love that George continues that idea that the force does have a will. The force does have a purpose with this chosen one in Anakin. And the one moment where it yells out is this moment when Anakin is falling very far away from what he's supposed to be. The force itself is trying to, to get his attention and say, no, that's not, no, don't do it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
And of course, you know, losing Shmi, losing his mother is the bedrock for the, well, I would say the bedrock of Anakin's fall is ultimately being taken from his mother and Phantom Menace. Um, but what solidifies that he's going to fall is his, his perceived inability to save her because he right. didn't have enough power. He feels like yeah. a failure until he gets more power. And again, that's another part of his frustration is, is I'm being held back by Obi-Wan, by the council. Everyone's holding me back. If I just have more damn power, I could have saved my mother. Um, and it's this selfish desire because he wants to be in control of everything in his life. And that is selfish because you know what? We can't control everything in our lives. Relationships come and go. We can't. Con and, and when we try to control them, we ultimately manipulate them. And it's not to say that Anakin should be, oh, yay, my mom died. But his inability to let go is the problem. Is, and, and he thinks that power is what he needs to prevent that sort of stuff from happening, which is obviously very much undone both in the original trilogy and then again in the sequel trilogy. It's not power that's going to bring Anakin back. It's love. It's not power that's going to bring Padme back. It's or Ray back. It's the love of Ben. Um, so I love that in as the story starts, because Anakin doesn't think he's supposed to be in love, he just thinks he'll get more power. That's the answer to his problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a uh, you know obviously an incorrect view of 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 how this works you know he he thinks in order to be able to have love he needs the power to, to protect it but what he doesn't realize is that love can have that power in and of itself yeah. so and that is just something that he doesn't understand right so one final thing i just want to mention because i thought it was really cool it has nothing to do with anything else but it is obviously an attack of the clones according to george lucas himself he believes that when Luke goes back in A New Hope and finds his dead aunt and uncle, he promptly buries them next to Shmi Skywalker. Whether or not Anakin, Luke knew who that was that was buried there, according to George, he believes that that's what Luke did. And that's where Owen and Brew are also buried. So it makes me actually love even more that Ray goes back and buries the lightsabers <laughs> on Tatooine. Yeah, all, all the, the parental figures are in one spot now. Exactly. So you've got Shmi literally wow. buried there in Attack of the Clones. According yeah. to George, Luke buries his parent figures there because that was the family graveyard. <laughs> and Ray goes back to the same place to bury her parental figures. And that mm -hmm. very same, that Skywalker burial ground. Um, so I just thought that was really cool yeah. that George mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. But boy, buddy, we've gone a long time. So we have. Oh, my gosh. I I love this. And I hope all of you listening also enjoyed all of this just kind of deep looks at uh, Attack of the Clones. Um, I have so many more things I want to say about all this stuff, Jason, but we just we'll have to come back to it at a later date. Yeah, we definitely will. It's been uh, an amazing episode. I've loved talking about all this. I've, you know, I've known a lot of this stuff. I've heard a lot of this stuff. Read a lot of this stuff. Uh, but it's nice to really sit down and put it all together in something like this. So, um, gosh, it just makes me so happy to talk about Attack of the Clones, why it's important, and how awesome it really is. <laughs> so, it really yeah. is. Yeah. Well. Before we go, 
Um, we're not going to actually play a radio drama at the end of this episode um, just because it went so long as it is. Uh, so we'll, we'll continue with the A New Hope radio drama next week. Um, but also, like we said, next week we are going to be celebrating our 400th episode of the podcast and, and nine years of podcasting together, which is just wild. Buddy. Yeah. Um, so, That's nuts. Yeah. So what we want to invite you to do is to send us just one of your favorite things about the Wampus Lair. It can be a memory. It can be something we've done on the show. Anything at all. We invite you to send in something you love about the Wampus Lair. And we will share those next week um, in the episode. You are welcome to send an audio clip. Please keep it under a minute. Um, or feel free to just write something in. But again, we just ask that you keep it kind of brief. Um, and we would ask that you send any and all of that to our, our email, which is just wampuslairpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, uh, because that way we can kind of keep all of the stuff for our next episode kind of contained in the same area. So uh, so please, and also if you're, if you're going to send something in, please make sure to get it in um, by the afternoon on uh, Tuesday because we do record Tuesday evening. So uh, that is when we record and we release, uh, you know, Wednesday. Um, so please get it in. If you want it for the episode, get it in by uh, Tuesday afternoon so that we can have it available to read or listen um when we when we record tuesday evening so uh but yeah once again wampuslairpodcast at gmail.com for all of that whether you want to write something or send us an audio file Um, Um, but and one final reminder as well so uh we are doing our october reads star wars reads giveaway uh if you would like to enter a chance to win the new clone Wars stories of light and dark hardback book um, all you have to do is write us a review on iTunes. You'll be entered to win the book. Or if you're on Twitter, you can simply, I put up a tweet today. You just simply like it and retweet it and you're entered to win the book. And you can do both and be entered twice. Um, so feel yeah. free to do that as well. Yes. Um, but that's that's what we've got. Carl, if people want to weigh in on anything we've discussed uh, or, or anything else Star Wars related, where can they get in contact with us, sir? Uh, well, like I said, we're on Twitter at Wampas Lair. Um, we're on Facebook, Wampas Lair Podcast. And be sure to send us all of your uh, your entries for next week's show at Podcast at gmail.com. And like uh, we talked about last week, we've got some new stuff up on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Lair. Yes, go check that out. Some uh, Wampas Lair book club stuff in the works. Yes. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of... The Wampus Lair Podcast. This has been episode number 399. Why Attack of the Clones? For Carl, I'm Jason, and we'll see you next time in Dex's Diner here in the Wampus Lair. You want to buy some death sticks? You don't want to sell me death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life.
the Jedi! What do you know? of your thoughts, Anakin, that betray you. You have made a commitment to the Jedi Order, a commitment not easily broken. There aren't enough Jedi to protect the Republic. We're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. They are using a bounty hunter named Jango Fett to create a clone army. We must stop them before they're ready. I will not let this republic be split in two. It must be difficult having sworn your love to the Jedi. Not being able to do the things you like. I'll be with the people that I love. Are you allowed to love? thought that was forbidden for a Jedi. You're making fun of me. Mm, no, I'd be much too frightened to tease a senator. You don't need guidance, Anakin. I see you becoming the greatest of all Jedi. Follow that speeder! He went that way. This is a shortcut, I think. Well, you've lost him. If you'll excuse me. Hate it when he does that. We could keep it a secret. We'd be living a lie. I couldn't do that. Could you, Anakin? She's a politician, and they are not to be trusted. I've heard this lesson before. You haven't learned anything, Anakin. It's all Obi Wan's fault. He's holding me back. You're not all powerful, Anakin. Well, I should be. Someday I will be the most powerful Jedi ever. I will create a grand army of the Republic to counter the increasing threats of the Separatists. Hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. You must join me, Obi-Wan, and together we will destroy the Sith. The dark side clouds everything. In grave danger you are. 